Brothers and sisters, it's an honor for me to be here on this pulpit this morning to study God's Word with you guys. For those who don't know me, my name is Joe. My wife, Sarah, and I are members of this church. And along with other brothers, we have the privilege to be part of a rotation where we have a chance to come and preach God's Word. And today we'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible or your bulletin with you, oh, please turn to page... Uh, 11 of your bulletin, Luke chapter 10. Now, before we begin reading our passage, I want you to pause for a second and think about something that is important to you in your life. It may be some savings you have that you worked hard for. Uh, It may be some items that you have some precious memory about. It can also be your children. Whatever you have or whatever you are thinking, I'm assuming that you make a great effort to make sure that they are safe and secure. You put your savings in a bank, you store the member items in in a box, and you always look after your children. Even if you are not with them, you you want them to be with someone who can take care of them like you would. And the principle here is very simple and straightforward. Uh, The more important the possession, the more you want it to be in a place that is safe and secure. Now in Luke chapter 10, we're dealing with the most important possession of our lives. It is our salvation, our eternal life. And through reading the verse uh, verse 1 to verse 24 of this chapter, my desire for us is to understand that our security of eternal life lies in God's sovereignty over our salvation. That will be our main point. Our security of eternal life lies in God's sovereignty over our salvation. So if you have a Bible with you, let's first read Luke chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send our laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in midst of wolves. Carry no money bags, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say first, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for for the laborers deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in, in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its street and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For for if the mighty works done in you, had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting on sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, 
and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." And he said to them, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you." Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will." All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and any and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, "Blessed are the eyes that you that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear." And did not hear it. If you are taking notes this morning,、uh, the verses we are reading presents five points that reveal God's sovereignty over our salvation. Five points. First, God prepares the faithful to save others. God prepares the faithful to save others. The second point is that He offers peace to sinners. Third point is He warns against unbelief. Fourth. He gives power to the faithful, and the last, the fifth, is God reveals the truth of the gospel. So God prepares the faithful to save the others. He offers peace to sinners. He warns against unbelief. He gives power to the faithful, and at last, God reveals the truth of the gospel. Now we are not at a point of Jesus' ministry where he has taught many times in synagogues. In different towns, perform miracles, healed many who are sick, and also cast out demons in front of crowds. He is now recognized and followed by many, and we learn from past few chapters that people would come to Jesus and wanting to become his disciples. Now, among the people who are with Jesus, he chose seventy-two of them to send them out to preach the good news. Although we don't we don't know much about these seventy-two disciples. These are chosen disciples、uh, by Jesus. There should be a very、uh, recognized characteristic of them. That is, they are faithful followers. They are not here to just to see Jesus perform miracles. They are here because they genuinely want to follow Jesus. I can think of three criterias that these chosen disciples have. First is that these disciples know Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior sent by God. Because this was the theme of Jesus' message from the beginning, he declared that he is the God's chosen one who was sent by sent to save God's people from His judgment. He is here for those who know that they are spiritually broken and have nothing to offer in the eyes of a holy God. So these disciples know that they are spiritually broken and they need a savior. The second criteria is that their faith 
in Jesus' power and authority. They have heard him declare that he himself is the Lord of Sabbath. His authority is over is is higher than all the man authorities, and uh, they must have also seen God perform or Jesus perform miracles. Uh, they believe that Jesus have equal power and authority to God. And third, for these people to be here and now chosen by Christ, they must also know the cost of following Jesus. We saw last week that. Many show desire to follow Jesus, but Jesus warned them that there's a great cost to be his followers. He said, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." And this statement must have kept kept many away from Jesus, but the seventy-two stayed with them. They understand the cost, and they continue to follow. When we see here that Jesus is sending the seventy-two out to share the gospel, one takeaway for us is that God saves people so that they may save others. God prepares the heart of His followers to multiply His work in salvation. When God saves one man, He already planned out how He would use that person to save others, and that is how we are saved.、And、it may not just be one person. God is gracious enough to send many people in our lives to share the gospel. I can remember many moments in my life when God sends His disciple to save me. Back when I was in elementary school in Hungary, I remember taking the bus home one day, and I, I met a Chinese man on the bus.、Uh, he looked at me and he asked, "Young man, have you heard of Jesus before?" Yeah, interesting.、Um, he was very patient and polite, not giving me any kind of pressure. He was genuinely sharing the gospel to me, but I did not believe it. I walk away thinking that there is no God. I also remember during the coldest time in winter, two Hungarian missionaries would come to our door and, and knock and ring our bell, and、um, I would walk out to them and through the snow, and I would. Ask what I can, what can I do for them, or what they're here for, and they will speak Chinese to me. <laughs> I say, "Hi, we are Christians. Do you have a minute for us to share who is Jesus to you?" I refused again for for several months.、Uh, these men would come again to our doors、um, and just ask for a chance to explain the gospel. So even though I was not saved. During those conversations, these moments in my life remind me of God's grace, because I know at one point in these people's lives, God changed their heart and put the desire to share the gospel in them. And because of that, I'm saved today. And I believe the same principle applies to us as well. God saves the seventy-two so that they can go out and share the gospel. God saved us. So we can save others. Now, as we continue to look into the first few verses, we see that God's saving work is also motivated by compassion and love. After choosing the seventy-two before sending them out to the mission field, Jesus said to them, "The harvest is plentiful, but labors are few." What hides under the sentence is Christ's compassion for the lost. It becomes very clear if you read Matthew chapter nine, verse twenty, or、uh, verse thirty-five to thirty-seven. 
So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 25. It says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So the core motivation for Christ is knowing that people needed help, not just physically, but spiritually. He is saddened by the life that people are living that will eventually lead to judgment and eternal punishment. And motivated by his compassion, Jesus sends out his disciples to save the lost. Not only in compassion should the disciples go and share the gospel, Jesus also tells them about the urgency of the task. The instruction here is clear in verse 4, carry nothing, prepare nothing, and greet no one. And Jesus is telling them not to waste any time preparing for the road uh, and greet no one, as he said, because in Jewish culture, greeting is something uh, that's more complicated than just say hi. Uh, it, it may involve you have to invite a person over for dinner or for a meal, and it will delay the mission. And it also says in verse 7, uh, Jesus tells them to stay in the same house, eat and drink what the house provides. Uh, this is to instruct them to, to be satisfied with whatever is provided for them. Don't spend extra time finding a more comfortable host. If someone receives you, stay with them. And if someone rejects you, just move on. So Jesus here is letting them know the urgency of their mission. They have to be focused. They have to know the time is limited and the judgment is coming soon. I realize that in soccer games, if a team is losing to another team by few points, especially when, when the team score, you don't see them celebrate. They just grab the ball and sprint to the center of the court for the kickoff. Because they know the clock is not stopping for them when they celebrate. They are laser focused to accomplish their mission, which is to win the game. And similarly, Jesus cares for the lost personally. He wants the disciples to know that this is an urgent task. They have to be focused on the task and not be distracted. Now, as we think back about the main point of our passage this morning is that we should find comfort in God's sovereignty over salvation. Uh, the first point here is that God is the owner and initiator in the act of saving our souls. He is the one who prepares the hearts of the disciples and he sends them out to the mission field out of his love and compassion. The second point of the passage uh, is that God offers peace to sinners. From the instruction of Jesus, uh, we can see that the core message is that disciples must let people know that they are here to offer peace. Verse 5 writes that, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. This is the most important message of the gospel. That's why you have to say first, it is to offer peace. But what does peace mean? First of all, it is not just a wish. Right? Like what we would say in 
Chinese New Year's 恭喜发财 or wishing friends health, wealth, and happiness. This piece is an offering from the kingdom of God. And what is the purpose of this message? Why peace? The reason for God to offer peace is that the default state of man is being an enemy of God. All men have abandoned God, their Creator, and lived a life that is disobe- disobedient to Him. And this will eventually lead to God's judgment. We saw in verse two,、um, Jesus mentioned about the harvest, and this refers to the judgment day. Matthew chapter thirteen writes in detail that during that day, the angels will come and separate the unrighteous from the righteous. The the unrighteous will be thrown into hell, and the righteous will be part of God's kingdom. So the peace here refers to what we know as the gospel, the good news. It offers access to God's kingdom, a way to heaven, an escape from hell. And to accept this peace, one must come to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For the people to understand peace, the disciples should first explain to them their lack of peace. And thinking about our own lives as Christians, I know the message of the gospel is not so easy to share, or to share it precisely. The important message here is that by our God's perfect standard. There's no good person in this world. You and I are all sinners. If you don't put your faith in God, you are facing His judgment, that results in hell. And this message is offensive to many people. So it's tempting for us when we share the gospel to skip this part and just talk about what's attractive. When I first became a believer, I remember I was very excited. But I would not share about sin or judgment. I would often share with others. It's great to be Christian because now I have a purpose in life. Or you should be a Christian because God is real and He loves you. He wants the best for you. And these are all true, but this is not the gospel. The joy of a Christian life is real and attractive, but the foundation of that joy. Comes from accepting the peace that God offered to us, and when we think our second point here that God offers peace, this peace does not refer to happiness, comfort, or success. Although joy may come as a result of believing, it is not part of the gospel. Even though believers would find com- find comfort in Christ and even motivation to achieve great things, comfort and motivation. Are not part of the gospel. The gospel is peace offering from God, because all men have sinned against Him. God crucified His own Son Jesus, so those who trust in Him are no longer His enemies. Now, after the disciples made the message clear, it is up to the hearers of the message to respond. Verse six says, "For some households, the Son of God is there." Which means they have accepted the gospel, and for other household, they would refuse. And for those who refuse the gospel, God gives out His warning. And this is the third point of our study. It is God warns against unbelief. 
In verse 11, gives, uh, Jesus gives a general instruction to respond to those who have rejected his message. He told his disciples to go into the street and say, even the, do- even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. This is to public, publicly warn those who have rejected the gospel that they don't belong to God's kingdom. But Jesus did not just stop there. He says in verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So Jesus is telling his disciples to not only make sure the listeners understand that they have chose not to be part of his kingdom, but the sin of rejecting the message is greater than any other sins. There will be different levels of punishment in hell. And the most severe ones are against those who reject the gospel. Here the, compassion is, uh, here the comparison uh, is between a town that rejected Jesus' message and Sodom, which was a city destroyed by God in Old Testament because of their sins. And the sin of Sodom was extremely offensive to God. It was a city filled with lust. It is mentioned in Genesis chapter 19 when God sent two angels to visit Sodom. All men in the city, young and old, came after the angels and wanting to rape them. So the whole town is filled with sinful desires and no repentance. And the sin was so severe that God rained sulfur to destroy the entire town. But Jesus is saying here the town that rejects the gospel will suffer greater punishment than Sodom. Now if you keep reading from verse 13 to verse 15, Jesus lists out a number of cities and accuses them of the same crime that they have rejected him even though much of his miracles and ministries were done in those cities. Although all sins are offensive to God and all sins deserve punishment, no sin is as severe as rejecting God's grace. There's only one way to accept this gift. It is to submit our lives to Him. But there are many ways people reject the gospel. Some people can be very offended, but some may just politely refuse to believe. One of my friends would always say to me that maybe one day in the future he will believe. But no matter in which way a person refuses the gospel, the implication is the same. It is to say the sinful life they live now is better than what Christ has purchased for them. And this is more offensive to God than any other sin a person can commit. Even for Christians today, we must be reminded daily that we should not take the gospel lightly. Though our sins are forgiven, we still sin every day and we need God's grace every day. The Bible tells us that God's mercy is new every morning, then so should our thankfulness and humility. We live in a city where everyone is so busy chasing after their desires. And being in this environment, there are many temptations for us to seek fulfillment outside of the gospel. If a person tells God, God, thank you for saving me, for giving me eternal life, but I really need this new job, 
or I really need this promotion, otherwise I cannot be happy. Then this is not as different as the people who rejected gospel. It is to say, there's a way of life that is better and more fulfilling than what Christ has purchased for us. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is that the gospel determine your joy, not your accomplishments. The gospel is the work of God. If we live depend on it, we have peace and security. But if we live to pursue the work of man, it is offensive to God, and we must repent. Coming back to the verse we are reading here, Jesus is warning against people who have heard the gospel, yet still refuse to submit. But the faithful ones, Jesus gives them great authority and power. And this is our first, fourth point, that God gives power to the faithful. It says in verse 16, that the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This is a very similar idea that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians, that we are the ambassadors of Christ. This does not only mean that the message of the disciples carries a certain weight as they are sharing God's word. Being an ambassador also means we represent Christ Jesus. So Jesus is telling the 72 that now you go out to speak and behave on my behalf. And along with the authority, Jesus also gives disciples power. First, he gave them the power to heal people physically. Verse 9 writes, all, writes, tells us that Jesus gives them the power to heal people's physical illness. Healing has always been part of Jesus' ministry, and now he's giving his disciples the same power. But more than that, the power given to disciples are also for spiritual world. You can see this in verse 17 as the disciples return from the mission, and with excitement they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This means the disciples also possess power to fight against demonic powers. This becomes clear as Jesus responds to the disciples, saying that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Christ is saying that while they were on their mission for the gospel, he can see in spiritual world Satan's kingdom falling apart. What we can learn from this passage is that we are in a spiritual battle and the most effective weapon for us to fight against Satan's kingdom is the gospel. While the disciples go out and call people to put their faith in Christ, they are rescuing them from hell. Colossians 1 verse 13 writes about our salvation as God delivered us from the domain of the darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So the work of the disciples is to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. Until this day, the war still goes on between the kingdom of light and darkness. And the gospel is given to us with the power to save souls and cross the plan of the devil. My wife, sure, would sometimes laugh at me about a weird trick I would often practice to remind myself to do the right thing. 
And the trick is to think about what the devil wants me to do and do the opposite. For example, if my wife asked me to help wash dishes and I was hesitant, I would tell myself the devil must want me to, to take a break. <laughs> the devil does not want me to be a good husband. And that gives me some extra motivation to do the right thing. Same thing with sharing the gospel or telling people about my faith. One of the most helpful reminders is that I know the devil wants me to be quiet. If I just shut my mouth, he'll be very happy. But God is telling us that we have all the power we need to fight against the devil, and we should. Let's move on now to the last point of our study. God reveals the truth of the gospel to his chosen people. God reveals the truth of the gospel. It starts in verse 21 with Jesus rejoicing over God's design in salvation. He praises God for being in full control over who would be saved. And in God's plan, it is not the wise that would be able to figure out the mystery of the gospel. The wise here does not even mean those who have wisdom. It's more like those who think they are wise and pridefully assume that, that they gain God's favor by their work. But God chooses to reveal the knowledge to those like little children. And these are people who recognize their spiritual needs and desire to live dependent on God's salvation. And Jesus praises God saying, this is his gracious will. What does it mean? What does it mean by saying that this is his gracious will? It means that it is God's gracious will. Christ is saying that God's sovereignty over our salvation is favorable to us. The reason is if any part of our salvation depends on man, we will surely lose it. So God's sovereignty over salvation is favorable to us. Because if it depends on the work of our own, we'll surely lose it. I will lose my salvation the moment I wake up, complaining why I need to go to work. So it should not just, it should not just be the joy of our Lord that God is sovereign over our salvation. But we should rejoice as well. If you keep reading, we know that Jesus is reminding his disciples the same idea. They should rejoice over their own salvation more than anything else. Verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your knowledge of the gospel, oh, sorry, um, re- but rejoice that your name are written in heaven. So in other words, be happy because God had revealed the knowledge of gospel to you. And your name is written in heaven. It is safe and secure. God chose, God chose you and he will sustain your faith. This is great news to you to be joyful for. But this is not it. Verse 24 writes, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is telling the disciples the privilege they have at the moment to have witnessed the full plan of God's salvation. God never revealed the whole plan of salvation to anyone in the Old Testament. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David. And with the presence of Jesus 
and God's revelation, these disciples become the very first group of people who clearly understood how God saves his people. And the key to God's plan is salvation, is knowing Jesus Christ. It's been a while since we started studying Luke, but if you still remember the story of Simeon in chapter 2, it actually illustrates the privilege of knowing Jesus and witnessing God's salvation unfold. If you turn to the second half of Luke chapter 2, it writes about Simeon, uh, who was a righteous and faithful man in Jerusalem. And he was in his old age when Christ was born. But by grace of God, he had a chance to see baby Jesus in the temple of Jerusalem. Knowing that he is the promised Messiah, Simeon held baby Jesus in his arm and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So even for a dying saint, there lies a great difference in going to heaven knowing and seeing the Messiah. Now what about us? What is the takeaway for us here in this day and age? We have not seen Christ in person. We don't have Christ with us instructing us to go and preach the good news. Are we less privileged? I don't think so. Uh, Even though we have not seen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we now live a life fully capable of knowing the purpose of God and person of Jesus Christ. And regardless of the type of privilege we have, the responsibility for the disciples and us are the same. It is to live out the salvation that God has revealed to us. We are responsible to speak and act as witnesses of Jesus Christ, who died for us and resurrected from death. We are new witnesses of Christ. We are also witness to God's salvation in full display. We have met people who God sent to us uh, to save us. We were presented with the gospel and learned the seriousness of our sin and the joy in salvation. Now we possess the same power as the disciples to continue to spread the good news and extend God's kingdom. But at the same time, we know that it is not our work that saves, but it's by God's sovereign power that he chosen one will know him. We began our study by thinking about important possessions in our lives. And if you see your eternal life as the most important possession, don't leave that into your own hands. My encouragement for you is leave it to God. In His hands, your life will be safe and secure. And in His sovereign power, you will find peace, joy, and obedience. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the good news that your son has came to us to save us from our sins. We ask you to work in our heart that we may have compassion to the lost, that you may work in us to 
preach the good news to others, Lord. Give us courage, give us love, and give us wisdom, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.